0: So go ahead and look into John 13, is where we find ourselves this morning. John 13, beginning in verse 21, we are, you may remember in the upper room with Jesus, we just celebrated the Lord's Supper, the disciples would have been celebrating the Lord's Supper for the first time, uh, that last supper as we call it, and we come to this verse, verse 21. After saying these things, and that is where Jesus revealed that there was to be a betrayer, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. When he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, Lord, give us ears to hear, because this is a passage so filled with both Cause for joy and cause for terror. It's a dark passage, and yet your light shines in the midst of it as well. So grant us to see the message that you intend for us, the warnings, the encouragements. Don't let us sit like Judas at the table and not hear and respond to Christ's words, but Along with John and the other disciples, let us hear and by faith respond to receive what you would give us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this ends up being a rather dark passage. You probably notice as, at least to my mind, a sudden cold wind blows through that upper room. And what a change it is from the way things start in John 13. Back in verse 1, we read that having loved His own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. And then we watched as He so graciously washed their feet, teaching them what it means to serve like Him. But now here we are, all of a sudden, thinking about His betrayer and how one of His own men is about to turn on Him. We've we've seen before, haven't we, that this isn't really something that any of them saw coming, except, of course, for Jesus Himself. He's known from the beginning, we've been told repeatedly, who will betray Him. And He's been trying to prepare them for it. Which is where we ended last time. As suddenly, in the midst of their Passover celebration, Jesus warns them in verse 18 that the Scripture will be fulfilled and one of their friends will betray Him, uh, quoting from Psalm 41 verse 9. And so you've got to wonder what it is they're thinking in this moment. I mean, they had lots of friends. Uh, The circle of Jesus' companions was bigger than just these 12 gathered in that room. Uh, We know of about 120 friends and followers of Jesus at this point. So surely the disciples must have assumed He means one of those other friends. Uh, Friends to be sure, but but, but not from the inner circle. Not part of this close-knit group of brothers who've now been together for three years. And that's why what Jesus says next must have dropped like a bomb onto that table as He gives the warning, one of you will betray Me. Now let's look at that a little more closely. Verse 21, after saying these things, after giving the warning that there was a friend that was going to betray Him, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. Now just notice first Jesus own disposition it says that he was troubled in his spirit now that that word means to be to be deeply stirred, almost imagine this boiling pot, uh, your stomach tied in knots. It's a, it's, it's a word that describes a, a sense of anguish that, that comes upon someone. And, and we've seen this same turmoil uh, taking hold of Jesus before, back in John 11, uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, as he watched the pain and sorrow filling the hearts of his friends over the loss of their brother, we're told that this sense of anguish came upon him. We saw it again in John twelve twenty seven as Jesus faces the reality of His own coming death on the cross. And He cries out, chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And now we see it a third time as Jesus comes face to face here with the reality of the man who will betray Him. Now just, church, we should never forget that Jesus, though He is the Son of God, He is filled with the Holy Spirit and the joy of His relationship with His Father. Nevertheless, in Scripture we're told He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And listen, if if, if Jesus' life on this earth was not exempt from times of turmoil and sorrow and pain and anguish, then we should not at all be surprised when our lives are touched by these same things as we follow Him. 1 Peter 4.12, in fact, says just that. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It is not strange. You and I have never been promised an exemption from the pains and sorrows of this life. What we have been promised is the presence of Christ to lead us through them. But not that we will be exempt From them. And so, this is one of those moments in the life of Christ where he is facing the kinds of earthly trauma that you and I will face in this broken world. And yet, as we watch, he does it in a way that gives us hope that such sorrows can never have the final word. They will be present, but they will not be final. For now, there is sorrow present. And it must have shown on his face. Because it says that He then testified of this, verse 21. That that means that He's explaining to them what it is that they just saw, the dark cloud that crossed His face. Jesus was troubled in spirit and it says He testified, Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, I'm not going to make the sound this time. But you see the truly, truly. You understand that. This is something very important that He is now telling them. And in this case, it's very, very important for them seated there personally because they know a betrayal is coming. He's just told them. They know it will be one of their friends, but what they don't know, what they, what they never could even guess at this point was that it would be one of them here in this room. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will Betray me, And I think everything freezes in that room at that moment as they begin to sort of sideways glance at each other. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He meant. These are those little little glances you give this way and that way when you're not sure what to think and you're you're kind of suspicious of of what might be going on around you. And there's this sense of suspicion in the room, even, even to the point of doubting themselves. Matthew 26, 22 says that, they questioned themselves, and they one by one said, Lord, is it I? Is it me? And so this is a bombshell. Can you even imagine? If any of their minds had wondered at this point during the meal, he's got their full attention now. And so, there comes the obvious question now from a friend, Lord, who is it? It's what they all want to know. Verse 23 to 25 One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So this disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now Several things for us to see here. First of all, who is this unnamed disciple, and why is he leaning up against Jesus like this? Well, we're never actually told his name, neither in this scene nor in the gospel as a whole. We're just simply told several times that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Four times, in fact, this disciple appears in this gospel and he's never identified by name. The last time we see this particular disciple is at the very end of the gospel where it's finally revealed to us that he is, in fact, the author of this Account John 21, 24 says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, sitting there leaned back against Jesus, is none other than John who wrote this account for us. Now think about that just for a second. Think about why that's important for us to see throughout this gospel, but particularly Here. Have you ever wished that you could have an inside track on the life of Jesus by someone who was actually there? Someone who saw Him personally. uh, Someone who spent time with Him and heard what He said in those private moments. And was there to describe those crucial moments in the life of Christ. Have you ever wished that that you could have that? You see where I'm going, right? That's exactly what you have. Here in John's Gospel and Matthew's too and Mark and Luke in their own way uh, through through other participants. My point being that there's a vibrancy of firsthand experience here in these Gospels that that give us an accurate personal account of Jesus that, that in a very real way puts us in the room. But still, why this title? Well, one reason, of course, is that John is the last living of the apostles. We know that from history and from the from the Bible. And he sort of hides himself. He, As he's written this gospel later in time, he doesn't want the, the attention to be, Oh, that's, that's John writing this. So he sort of hides himself in the narrative. But why this title, The Disciple Whom Jesus Loved? I mean, I mean, is John trying to say, you know, I'm Jesus' favorite. I'm his bestie. No, that's not what he's saying at all. John is not saying you know, Jesus loved me more than the others. What he's saying is, Jesus loved me along with these others. It's actually a statement of wonder that He included me. That that He invited me into this close circles of His friends and he, He loved me like this. By the way, Christian, you can say exactly the same thing. The Apostle Paul, writing years later, marvels in Galatians 2.20 that the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. As believers, we ought to not lose the marvel, the wonder of the generosity of Christ's love. For us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and He claimed us as friends and He drew us near and that ought to blow us away. Okay, still though, why is John leaning up against Jesus like this? I mean, we look at it today, and if we could see a picture of it, it would really look rather strange to us. Remember when we looked at the foot washing a couple of weeks ago that it has to do with the way they would have been seated around the table in this kind of setting. Forget that picture painted by Leonardo da Vinci. They weren't seated around a table in chairs in a cathedral. They were in a small upper room reclining on cushions around a low table in a typical Middle Eastern style. A style, by the way, that had only come to the Jewish culture about 100 to 150 years before this uh, from the Romans. And when it first came to the Jewish culture, uh, the, the Pharisees were quite scandalized by it. They were scandalized about everything, but they were. And, and so in this setting, around, on, on cushions around a low table, you would lean on your left elbow to eat with your right hand, and the way things had to be arranged around that table, each man's head would be, next, would be at chest level to the guy seated next to him as they huddled around the table to share the food. And, and since John is to the right of Jesus, his head would have been next to Jesus' chest, and someone else's head would be next to his but here's what I find really interesting. The words John uses to describe this particular moment, and particularly his relationship to Jesus physically, he actually uses the words which Old English would translate, John was in the bosom of Jesus. And it's an arresting choice of words because John has used exactly those same words back in John 1.18 to describe the relationship Jesus the Son has to God the Father. John 1 verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, literally, who is in the Father's bosom. He has made Him known. These words, the importance of them is, they don't just indicate the closeness of the seating arrangement, they are an indication of the closeness of the communion. That Jesus shares eternally with the Father, it's a picture of the intimate fellowship and love that binds Father and Son with the Spirit together at a very deep and intimate level. And now John is using exactly those same words in John thirteen twenty three to describe his own relationship with Jesus. And I don't think that's an accident. John has a real tendency to do this kind of things, to pick words on purpose to make a point. And the point he seems to be making here is that this is the kind of intimate relationship Jesus offers to His disciples. That He brings us into the same kind of sweet fellowship with Him that He has enjoyed eternally with His Father. That He shares something of that intimacy with us. If you need a verse on that, think about what Jesus will pray when we get to the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 20, when He will say to the Father, I don't ask for these only, right, these, these 11 men around Me at the table, but also for those who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in Us, so the world may believe that You've sent Me. Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now that's, that's the kind of, of intimacy of fellowship Christ calls us to as disciples. This is what John is experiencing there in that room and communicating now to us. So we see once again that Jesus doesn't just save us to keep us out of hell, He saves us to bring us into the warmth of fellowship with Himself and with the Father. Friend, friend, this is one of the great goals of discipleship, to know Christ and to know His love like this. Paul prays for us this very thing, Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in His love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's the kind of deep joy that, that, that is being offered to the disciple. To, to sit, as it were, nestled up against Jesus and, and to experience His love in a, in a, in a real and genuine way. To, to, to nestle up against His breast, so to speak. And, and to hear His heartbeat of love and, and to feel, as the one song said, the warmth of His embrace. And you see that here represented in John himself as he sits there so close to Christ. But then the bombshell drops. One of you will betray me, he says. And they're all stunned by that. They're, they're, they're perplexed. N- nobody knows what to say, well, except one of them who always seems to come up with something. Peter verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So this disciple leaned back against Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? These words, by the way, indicate what what, what Peter did was this kind of thing. You know, you can just see him, can't you? Jesus said this, and Peter goes, John, ask him. And Peter must have been across the table from John, who is leaning in the seating position with Jesus. And again, verse twenty-five, we're told he leans back against Jesus to ask his questions. And the words indicate uh, that this, this 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 real well they really emphasize the physical contact between John and Jesus at this point. Quite literally, what it says is John rested his head against the sternum of Jesus, right against his breast bone. And i look at that and a couple of things came to mind. And the the, the commentaries would discuss this and and I just really gave it, was giving it some thought. A couple of things I think we should take note of as as we look at this positioning. First, we should notice the intimacy of fellowship that was shared in a meal like this. These were indeed very intimate settings. Like I said, the Pharisees at one point were scandalized, they got over it. But but close friends would be huddled together around a meal to share this food and friendship. And, and it really wasn't just about getting food in your belly. It was about acknowledging care for one another and expressing love and friendship and acceptance. Which, by the way, is why the Pharisees were so very offended when Jesus would share a meal like this with tax collectors and sinners. Can you imagine? Because the very act of sharing in this kind of meal was saying to the other person, I embrace you as a friend, I accept you as someone that I am willing to care about. By the way, think of that next time you read a place like Revelation 3 and Jesus invites Himself into your life to sup with you. Give give the significance. I'm coming, I want to sit really near you. I want to express my care for you. Quit locking the door to me by your foolishness and let me come in and express to you just how much I love you. Or even as we share the Lord's Supper week to week, this is the image we should have of this this invitation to intimacy with Christ. Second, we should realize how broken our culture is today in its inability to express genuine friendship like this. We've become so twisted and sexualized in our thinking about physical expressions of friendship, especially between members of the same sex, that we can't even imagine men sitting close and openly expressing affection like this. And, and even some wicked people will read kind of homoerotic themes into a passage like this. God help us. But I remember... Being in Eastern Europe one time and seeing two men holding hands as they talked and, 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 or walking arm in arm and, and, and kind of wondering in my American mind, well, what's going on here? Only to learn that this was a very common expression of friendship between men there. And Christ's culture was more like that. There there was nothing odd or or suspicious or or, or strange about sitting close with a dear friend and and, and expressing care in this way. And what a a shame that our sexually toxic culture has blunted even our ability to, 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 to feel that kind of affection and express it to one another in so many ways. But John, in the innocence and purity of genuine friendship, can lean back against Jesus to ask his question, Lord who is it? And rather than simply answer his question, Jesus gives him a sign. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And again, it appears that John is on Jesus' right, and very likely Judas is now seated on his left with Jesus in between them. And Jesus whispers back to John it's the one to whom I give this morsel this this little pinch of bread and this word pictures just a little tiny pinch of something and it usually would be bread that was used to dip in a bowl of sauce um, think of a party you've been to uh, where they had these little bread bowls, right? Those really cool little bread bowls with the dip or the or, or the cheese inside. And, and the way you eat it is you tear off a little piece of the bread and you, you dip it in the sauce and, and there you enjoy it. And, and that's what they would have been doing. But even more so, in that culture, there, there was an especially significant event if someone would take that little dip uh, of bread and they would offer it to you as a picture of friendship. In fact, it was seen as a sign of special favor, especially if the host, and that would be Jesus here, offered this to you. It was like Him saying to you, You are my friend. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that we could share this meal together like this. And if you did it openly where others could see what you were doing, it was, it was a way to particularly honor that person and, and to indicate that this is my buddy and I'm not ashamed for everyone to know. And so you have this powerful, I think, contrast here between John sitting near Jesus, enjoying the fellowship and the nearness of his love, and Judas being offered such love and yet about to reject it and walk away. Fulfilling, quite literally, Jesus' warning from Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And now that's all playing out right in front of our eyes here, which brings us into the tragedy of this evening. We cannot miss this the departure of the betrayer, and we're told, and it was night. Verse 27, Then after Judas had taken the morsel offered by Jesus, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to go buy what we need for the feast, and that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. I don't know about you, but a cold wind blows through my soul every time I read these words. As Jesus offers this symbol of friendship, and Judas takes the symbol, the bread itself, yet rejects the love behind it. And I just see his heart here slam shut and frost over with an icy coldness as he shuts himself off from Christ for the final time. And it says that Satan entered him. Literally, the Satan. The evil one. The personal enemy of Christ. And all that is good. No, this is not just a metaphor as one of the little commentaries that I'm ready to throw out said. This is not just a symbolic way of uh, saying, well, evil has now taken possession of Judas' soul. No, no, this, this is the personal presence of the evil one who has stepped in to take possession of Judas. And what a tragedy. I mean, can you feel it? I'm not asking you to weep for Judas. He's responsible for his own sins. Yet, this sin has so entangled him in a web of satanic deception that he loses even himself here. Listen, when a heart continues to turn towards sin, it can be hardened beyond hope. Think of Pharaoh, who continually hardened his heart against God until finally it says, God hardened his heart. God gave him over to it. Or Paul, preaching in Romans 1, warning us that that those who cling to their sin will be given over to it by God. Here Judas is given over to his sin and taken captive by the very originator of sin himself, Satan. I mean, if there had ever been any hope for Judas, there is none now. And that is the tragedy. Again, dear one, you cannot play in Satan's backyard and think you'll never be taken captive. You cannot play around with sin and think it will leave you unscorched. I don't know how Judas started. But I'm pretty sure he never said, I think I would like to be possessed of Satan and doomed forever. And yet at some point, he surrendered to this evil. By John 12, we were told he'd become a thief and a critic, ridiculing Mary for her act of love and anointing the feet Of Jesus, and there's there's some indication in John's Gospel and the other Gospels that he'd become bitter after Jesus rebuked him for that criticism of Mary, and had become more and more disillusioned. And no, we cannot read the heart of Judas, but but the results show a man moving further and further away away from Christ into the waiting arms of Satan. Until finally as 2 Timothy 2:26 warns us he was taken captive to do his will. And now it comes. And Jesus looks at him and says for all to hear what you're going to do do quickly. By the way it's a command not a suggestion. Jesus, at this point, dismisses Judas from his presence and Satan with him. Be gone, he says. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You go do what it is you've determined to do. (laughs) And yet even here, notice something, and I think this is important to see. Notice who is still in charge of this entire event. See, Satan may have taken possession of Judas' soul, but Jesus is still in charge of the whole situation. At no point is Jesus a helpless victim of anyone, even as He permits Himself to become a victim of this betrayal. No one takes His life from Him. He lays it down. Judas gets up from the table and vanishes into the night. And the disciples say, sit there without a clue what's going down right e- even John who heard what Jesus said and saw what happened doesn't seem to have put it together here just yet why not well, well I think it was because it was just too terrible for them to contemplate I mean we're like that aren't we we, we, we th- there are things we just don't want to see even when it's in front of them we, we don't want to, we, we don't want to see it I've seen this in parents. Their child does something you know that, that, that seriously needs addressed, and they just they sit there baffled. And well, my child wouldn't do that. I, I know in the school system, Kyle and others deal with that. Right? My kid would never do that. Your kid did that. One of us would never betray Christ. One of you just did. But it was too terrible for them to contemplate. Judas was their friend and their brother. They've, they've known him for three years now. They've loved him and shared fellowship. They, they can't imagine he would do a thing like this. So what do they do like us? They make their excuses. Verse 28 and 29. Uh, verse 29, some of them thought well, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, you know, go buy what we need for the feast or, or, or go give something to the poor. In these mind, In their minds, these are perfectly reasonable explanations. As soon as Passover ended that night, they would begin the Feast of unleavened Bread, which then ran for the next seven days. And obviously you need bread. And, and so the shops would open up after midnight so that you could get that bread. Maybe that's where Judas has gone. Another tradition at Passover was the, the giving of alms to the poor. And so the temple gates would open after midnight for the poor to gather so that benefactors could come and give them um, a, 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 a gift as a sign of their righteousness. Maybe that's what Judas is up to, they thought. I can even imagine one of them, maybe it was Thomas, turned and said, "By Judas, hurry back, buddy, we don't want you to miss anything. But John snaps us back to reality in verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Again, those words send a chill through my bones. It was night. It's not just a statement about the time of day, it's a declaration of the state of Judas's soul. As Judas swallowed that morsel of bread and turned his back on Christ, he himself is swallowed up by darkness. It says, immediately he went out, out of the room, yes, but also out of the presence of grace, out of the warmth of fellowship with Christ and His people, out beyond the bounds of hope into the blackest of night. And I can't help but see the contrast here between John sitting there in the warm embrace of Christ, staying in the room where love Lives where grace is full, where salvation is on display, and Judas turning and walking away into the dead cold of night, away from all these things. And I think what a warning that is. What a warning. Here's a man who claims to be a disciple of Christ, who looks like a disciple of Christ, and yet now he has walked away from Christ the light into the darkness. Didn't he remember? Didn't he remember Jesus saying in John 8: uh, John 8:31, let me back up to my right place, John 8:12. Didn't he remember, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." I mean, he should have remembered that he was there for it. When did he shut his ears and stop listening? Did he not remember the warning Jesus gave in John 12, 35? The light, meaning himself, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, but I assure you, implication, it's a very, very bad place. That darkness has just overtaken Judas. Judas. Oh, dear friend, whoever you are, dear friend, don't let that darkness overtake you. Let me leave you this morning with four things that I hope you remember and apply to your life. Four things that sort of ring in your ear very quickly. First, just the reminder that not, not all who appear to be disciples are indeed disciples. Your actions will reveal your heart. Judas appeared to be a disciple. He wasn't. He turned and left. And 1 John 2.19 warns us about those who went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Second thing to see here, The difference between a true disciple and a false one is this. A true disciple will remain with Jesus. Again, the image of John there. John 8 verse 31. Jesus said to those who believed in Him, If you abide, if you remain in Me and in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Third. Understand that those who turn from the light will find themselves lost in outer darkness. Almost devastating passages of the New Testament. John 25, verse 30 says, Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then, fourth, because I want to end with the hope of the gospel. Notice that joy and life belong to those who will abide, who will remain in the presence of Jesus. John 15 verse 7, If you abide, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you will, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you, being my disciple, bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. And I just end standing somewhere in that room looking over to see John and the other disciples in the presence of Jesus with life and hearing the slam of the door as Judas goes out into the night, ultimately for death. And just spurns within my own soul I want to be one of those nestled with Jesus near the heart of Christ. I want to be one who remains who trusts Him, who walks with Him, not one who disappears into the darkness with Judas. Dear friend, how about you? Where are you in this scene? And again, it's not that you save yourself, it's that the saved will remain near Jesus. The ones who are saved by grace will love Christ. They'll delight in Christ. They'll want to be near Christ. They can't imagine walking away and staying away from Christ. Where do you stand with Him? Father, Father, I thank You for this warning. But even more, I thank You for the encouragement that there is love to be had in Christ, that there is joy to be enjoyed in Christ, that there there is life to be found in the light with Christ, would you move every heart to see Christ, to respond to His call, and to sit at table and rejoice in His presence. For it is in your dear name we pray. Amen.